this morning with our sermon series entitled Grow. And what we've been doing for a number of weeks now is taking the fruit of the Spirit and sort of taking them one at a time. And uh, for some, it's a laborious uh, trudge through, gosh, there's another thing I'm not good at and another thing I'm not good at. And yet the hope is that in encountering ways that we might grow in our faithfulness to God, that we might find ourselves fuller in the picture of Christ's likeness. And so today we are going to attack two at one time, goodness and faithfulness. Goodness and faithfulness. Tim did a great job with kindness last week. Kindness is not dissimilar to goodness, which is not dissimilar to faithfulness. And so what I've decided to do this week is combine goodness and faithfulness and um, you will not hear me say either of those words much in the next 30 minutes or so. They're interrelated though. They're both ultimately about leading a truth-centered life. Goodness and faithfulness are ultimately about leading a truth-centered life. Goodness has to do with the consistency and sincerity of your life, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Faithfulness has to do with dependability, follow-through, responsibility. It's someone who keeps their promises. And so combined, what we'll see is that the heart of someone who's exhibiting goodness and faithfulness is like, it's like a clear lake where you can see straight through to the bottom. What you see is what you get. Someone who has goodness and faithfulness is seen all the way through. Not only do they live out the good life, but they live it faithfully and consistently no matter the context. We call this integrity. Integrity is living your fullness at all times. Uh, I'm not really very good at math. I've outed myself on that. It's not really my strength. But I do know that an integer in math is a whole number. Same word that we get integrity is where you get integer. It's a whole thing. Integrity is living wholeness. Not a fraction, not a part, but in full. And so when we talk about integrity today, which is this combination of goodness and faithfulness, what we're really talking about is what it means to live a whole life. A life not fractured by, I'm this way with these people and that way with the others, that we are our whole Christ-like selves for all. And so for me, this is a fun sermon to give. It's a tough one to give because anytime I preach, I have to give the sermon to myself as I prepare it. And I will tell you, it was a bit of a Jesus punch to run into this one because there were so many places in my life where I went, I wish I could say that was true of me, but I'm not there yet. And so as we dive into the word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are whole. Father, you lack nothing. As we uh, look into what you might say about a life that we are called to live, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves, we would be circumspect in this place, that we might see what it looks like to live with integrity in such a way that the world might know your goodness and your light. And so guide us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. First John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10, and then we'll skip into chapter 2, and I'll read uh, all the way through verse 6. You can read on the screens with me. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. At all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Yet if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, 
we make him out to be a liar. We're going to come back to that. And his word has no place in our lives. Chapter 2. My dear children, I, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The one who says, I know him, but doesn't obey his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. This is how. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Well, the first thing we see in this is in verse 5. I see God is light. God is light. There's no darkness. There's no evil. God is, is light. And if God is light, light is the absence of all those other things. He's whole and he's complete and he's consistent. So in him there can be no darkness then that would tell us that God is whole, this concept of an integer. He's a whole thing. There's not a fractured part of him that's darkness. There's not a piece of him that's missing. He's holy light. There's no part of the truth. There's no relative truth. There's no sort of true. It's either true or it's not true. And what God is presenting, what the scripture is presenting, is that he is truth in its wholeness. And so it says if we claim fellowship, and yet we're in the darkness, then we practice untruth. This could be said to be about uh, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a tough thing for us to deal with because if you go to the outside world, people, people who wouldn't claim Christ, and you ask them what their number one objection to Jesus is, most often the result comes back, well, Christians are hypocrites and I don't want to be one of them. Who was it? Gandhi said, I would follow this Jesus. Jesus is important for his, his followers. That Jesus I like, but his followers, I don't know if I can trust them. Hypocrisy is this thing that's, that's lobbed at Christianity, and, and we ruffle our feathers. That we, that's not true of us. They just don't get it. They're not on the inside. I would actually argue the opposite. I would say we are full on in hypocrisy. It's evidenced in us every day. It's not fun to see. It's not fun to recognize, but it is where we are. Because none of us is fully formed, fully perfect. We have uh, been taking on a new nature, right? We get, when we believe, we get the nature of Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit in, in our lives and dwelt in us. And yet the sin nature still exists. The flesh still fights forward. And so we hear things like, love your neighbor. And we go, yeah, we totally believe in that. We buy into love your neighbor. And yet if you watch the evidence of our lives... We love our neighbors, especially the ones that look like me and talk like me and vote like me and pray like me. This is a tough season to be a follower of Jesus. Election season is a tough season to be a follower of Christ because it is a landmine for a believer. There is hypocrisy at every turn if you follow Jesus and try to be active in a political system. Reality is when we get our national priorities or our political agendas ahead of kingdom priorities, we're on thin ice. We have to choose each day who we will serve. You ever hear somebody talk about their priorities? You don't get more than one. There's priority and everything else is subservient to whatever is on top. And so if our priority is a political agenda... And that creates 
disequilibrium. It creates a landmine for us to walk right over. Because if we're going to be loyal to this side or that side, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle. The danger is we become loyal to something instead of loyal to Christ. And I don't know about you, but I do not live in a democracy. I live in a kingdom. I just happen to exist in a democracy that lives around that. Christians are rightly ridiculed in election season because we promote one thing on Sunday and then Monday through Saturday we have to promote a different agenda in hopes that we'll get the lesser of two evils in or this agenda versus that agenda. And if you are politically active, do not take this as condemnation. And fight for justice for people. Fight for what Christ fights for. And yet know that that is a tight wire act. There's a reason that years ago I stopped speaking publicly in any way about politics. I wouldn't take this side or that side. I said I was done with it. Because every time I did it, I found it was a distraction to the gospel, which was my main calling. Not because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a Christian. If I'm a member of a kingdom and not of a democracy, then I follow a king. And so my policies, my agenda is my king's agenda. So when you listen to a debate and you hear two people talk out of both sides of their mouth about what it is they stand for, I find myself going, I don't like either of my choices. Not because there's a great one and there's a lesser one, not because we've had better ones in the past or maybe next time we'll get who we would, none of that. Because I don't have a candidate, I have a Christ. And none of the candidates ever line up with who I serve. Jesus has policies. On women, Jesus says, respect them. On the unborn, Jesus says, protect them. On the poor, Jesus says, serve them. On the sick, he says, care for them. On the oppressed, he says, fight for them. On immigrants and refugees, he says, welcome them. On Muslims, on homosexuals, on any other group that strikes fear in your heart, he says, love them. And I find myself dodging these things. But but this group scares me, but this group isn't like me, but I don't understand that culture or this history or this background. And I come back to Christ and he says, lay down your life. Jesus elected to give his life to see people rescued, to die so that his enemies could be set free and made whole and join in the inheritance of the Father. I don't have a candidate, I have a Christ. And this is hard. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Who in this room is praying for ISIS this morning? Seriously. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Was he being cute? He's being serious. Peter, put away your sword. Now, I'm not into the geopolitical world, and I don't know our defense strategy and our military agenda, and that's not my business. But as one man, a follower of Christ in Bowling Green, Ohio, my job is to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. A lot of us have to pray for the desire to want to pray for those who persecute us. We go, yeah, but that, you can't mean that, though. They're beheading Christians. You can't pray for them. It's a man named Saul once. 
persecuted Christians like no one else. Jesus interrupted and Saul becomes Paul and Paul becomes the most influential leader of our faith behind Jesus. Writes a third of the New Testament. One of the great persecutors of the church encounters Jesus and does a 180. The lesson for us is there are none beyond redemption. And I will leave it to experts to fight the bigger fights that I don't know about, that I am ignorant on. And yet I know for me whether the enemies be global scale or the guy across the street that I'm not sure we get along. I'm to pray for him. Because if I say I believe that, then it's on me to live that. If I say that that's what I'm about, then I have to actually live it out. And that's why it's so hard not to be a hypocrite. Because so many of the things we're called to live out are so difficult to do. But Jesus isn't playing Christ-likeness is not a nice idea, but a legitimate, life-changing invitation from God to be more like Jesus. So integrity means what? It means from the past to the present to the future, we are the same. It means from our private life to our public life, we're the same. It means that from one person to another, no matter their race, their class, their socioeconomic status, we are the same. That I don't talk down to somebody when I'm superior because I'm not. And I don't talk up to somebody because I'm inferior because I'm not. Integrity is goodness and faithfulness all boxed up. And what we find is that anything less than the whole truth is dishonest. Which makes it unfaithful. And I don't know about you, but I have experienced in my life that half-truths are actually whole lies. I don't want to live a lie. And so when I look at goodness and faithfulness, I am deeply challenged. How do I live a life of integrity? 1 John 1.10, he says, if, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We make God out to be a liar. Which is another way of saying all sin is rooted in our willingness to call God a liar. That's hard to hear. Because I don't ever feel like going through my day, I'm telling God he's a liar. And yet if I did a sin inventory, every single one, All of my rebellion is me saying, I think I know better than you. I don't think you have my best interests at heart. I don't think you really meant that. It started in the garden. Adam and Eve run into a serpent who convinces them that God is not giving them the best stuff. Maybe he's holding out on them and they believe the lie that maybe he is holding out on it. Maybe he's deceptive. And by believing God to be a liar, they fall into sin. Sin wasn't eating the apple. The sin was believing that God was somehow a liar. Every sin comes from doubting God's faithfulness and instead believing a lie. And if we struggle to let go of our money, it's because somewhere along the line we believe the lie. That a bank account is significance and success and that God is holding out on us when he says give your money away. So we worship material stuff. We worship a bigger bank account. We don't even recognize it, but we look at the the order of our lives and that's what we do. That's what I do. I have friends in Haiti. Been there a couple times, visited them, helped them, worked with them, loved them. Natural disaster strikes. I know what that email is going to ask me for. Hey, we need help. We need funds. We need to rebuild. There are people dying And you know what I think? In my honest heart, that'd be nice, but uh, 
I don't know if I can spare it. And yet, if you look at my checking account, you look at my savings account, you, I got a retirement plan. Come on. It's me saying, I, I, think, I think my needs are more important than their needs. And is that always wrong? No, be discerning. But I know in my own soul, when God asks me to give, I'm to give. And it's so hard because somewhere in me, there's a slice of me that goes, yeah, but if you have some money, you're secure. Where scripture says, don't take a money belt with you, you're secure. Your security is in me and me alone. God says, the earth is mine and everything in it. And we go, maybe. Every sin says, maybe God's wrong. Maybe God's holding out. Maybe God's not being honest. Maybe I deserve to be happy. Maybe I, maybe I should have nicer things. Maybe I need a, a better spouse. And when we, re- we read his word, we check it out, and it's a lie. Maybe we deserve far worse, actually. You were hoping this was going to get more depressing, right? R.C. Sproul said, never ask God for justice. He might actually give it to you. That if you demanded it at midnight, there'd be no humans left on earth at 1201. Greed, lust, pride, worry, they're all rooted in lies. Are you consumed by worry and anxiety? No, you're controlled by a lie. Worry says, I don't trust that the sovereign God of the universe has my best interest at heart. That's worry. So worry is believing the lie that you'd do better in control than God, lie. Or that God may not actually be in control, lie. And so I will fret about my future as if he doesn't already see it. Are you downcast? Are you guilty? Are you ashamed? There's a lie that says your sin can condemn you. Romans says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. The penalty's paid. Doesn't mean that sin isn't still present, but like Tim said so eloquently last week, sin is still present, but the power is gone. The lie is that somehow the power still exists, and we bought into the lie, and so we walk with our heads hung low because we've fallen back into this habit or that sin. When the truth is, you're free. We have to start with truth everywhere we go. We have to start with truth, and we have to be rooted in truth. And then to live that out is then integrity. Most of us know what we believe about almost everything. We know this is true because most of you have Facebook. And if you've ever posted anything that's even slightly controversial, you know everybody's got an opinion. And we know what they say about opinions. I'll let you go with that. Some of you will get there. Others, you are more righteous than me. 1 John 1.6 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we claim to have fellowship and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. William Gurnall, a 17th century English clergyman, said there's three ways to measure integrity. Three ways. So as we combine goodness and faithfulness into integrity, look, what are the three ways? How do I know? What's my diagnostic? He says the first way is newness. Newness. N-E-W. Newness. He would ask the question, are you a hypocrite? And if you say no, then you've not been made new. He says a believer would say yes, Less of one than I was, but there's still some areas I'm working on. He says, if you've not been made new, then you say, no, I'm not a hypocrite. Because to be made new is to be made known. 
Newness is that aha moment that brings the past into focus, allows the present to be seen, and then lights the future with truth that we still have work to do. Newness is that aha transformation moment. It's a guy by the name of Claiborne Paul Ellis. CP, they called him. CP Ellis was born in North Carolina, right around Durham, where Duke University is. He actually grew up uh, to be a janitor at Duke. Pretty uh, poor upbringing, difficult time in the 50s and 60s in America. A lot was going on. North Carolina was the epicenter. His father was a Klansman. C.P. Ellis didn't have a whole lot of positive interaction uh, with anyone. And he didn't have a whole lot of interaction with anybody of a different race. And so C.P. Ellis, this poor white young man begins to believe the lies that the reason he's poor is because African Americans have somehow harmed the system. C.P. Ellis goes on to be a, a distinguished Klansman himself. He takes on the role of exalted cyclops of his local chapter, which means he is the absolute leader in Durham, North Carolina. 1968, he throws a party to celebrate the assassination of Dr. King. Now, this is a guy that we would wash our hands of and say, okay, he's, he's one step too far. 1971, there's a grant issued to his town. And he is put, since he is a leader of his town, as the leader of the Klan, which was very prominent at the time, he's given a, a co-chairmanship of this committee deciding how to use this grant. $78,000 to help figure out the problem of segregated schools. He's happy to do it. He walks into the room for the first meeting, and he finds his co-chair as a woman, strike one, an African-American woman, strike two, a woman by the name of Ann Atwater, a prominent African-American woman, an activist, says, great to meet you. We're going to do this together. He has no choice but to try to lead to get his agenda through, and so as they begin to work together, They have to go out into the community together to try to recruit people to serve on an advisory board to figure out what to do with the money. A few days into it, they come together, and she says, you know, my kids are getting harassed at school because I'm working with the Klansmen. He says, that's funny, my kids are getting harassed at school because I'm working with an African American. And they see something in each other, and they have this moment that lights up, and they say, we may not be all that different. Not too much longer, C.P. Ellis stands up in front of the Ku Klux Klan of North Carolina and he tears his Klansman card in half and he resigns. He goes on to be one of the great change stories in the civil rights movement. So much so that he ends up leading a union that's 70% black and championing the cause of bringing them out of poverty. Why? Because he had an aha moment where he not only saw someone else for who they were, but he saw himself for who he was, and he went, oh. And all of a sudden, C.P. Ellis looks back at his past, and he sees it comes into focus, and he realizes where he's been, and he looks at his present, and he sees, wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it was, and he looks at the future, and he says, there's work to be done. The mark of newness is a transforming mark upon our lives, where we can look back and go, I knew who I was. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once was blind, and now I see. And while I don't see 2020 yet, and I'm working on it. Second thing is plainness. 
Plainness, open honesty and vulnerability. Psalm 15 asks the question, who will dwell on the holy hill? The psalmist is asking, who's going to be in the presence of God? The answer comes back, he who walks blamelessly, who speaks the truth from his inward parts. This is the opposite of being deceptive. It's speaking what others only want to hear. That's the opposite of this. Plainness is to say what's on the inside and have it come out all right. To have a heart that's fully open and fully vulnerable and fully honest. And so what's happening here comes out here. People ask, how do you know if you have plainness? Gurnall said, you ask the question, how do you take criticism? Which seems like a weird way to get at it. How do you take criticism? If somebody criticizes you, what's your first response? Mine's usually to find the agenda of the critic. What are they getting at? What's their angle? What's their motive? Some become defensive immediately. What? You don't know me. You don't know what's happening in my life. You don't know anything. Some take truth, and, and they seek to learn how to apply it. You see, Gurnall says, he who is plain is unafraid of criticism because what's happening here is what's happening here and for all to see. And so to be criticized is to be seen rightly. The reason we're often so defensive of criticism is because somebody's hit a nerve that we haven't exposed to them yet. When we practice plainness, we look at the world around us and we say, I am what I am and I'm not quite there yet. Plainness is the willingness to allow what is true of you and your deepest parts to be seen by all. If there's husbands in the room, I don't know about you, but the two hardest words in the English language for me are you're right. Honey, did you mean to do it that way? Uh Uh-oh. Hey, when you were fixing that, I mean, did you, you know, the screws are supposed to go into the wood, right? Not like all, I'm not the handiest guy, but what I find myself doing when criticized, rightly criticized, is I go, sway, it's misdesigned. The people who made this wood, it's, the seam is off on the, she's like, it's particle board, there's no seam. But yeah, but still, the seam, it's the, it's the screwdriver. The battery wasn't all the way charged. It's not really my fault. The screw was misaligned with the thing. And the humidity in the, it's, a, it's not really me. It's not, my, it's not my problem, honey. Where what I should say is, yeah, it looked like a pack of third graders did that. You're right. Yeah, the chair really shouldn't be at an angle. Okay. But I have a hard time doing that. Everything in my pride says, no, no, defend yourself. Don't let anybody see that you're wrong. Don't let let them see that you're not perfect, that you don't have this figured out, that you haven't already... No. And humility and Christ-like integrity says, you're right. Yeah, I should have done it that way. Yeah, I should have... How many years, don't ask her, how many years of marriage did it take me to learn to say you're right? Well, we're going into year 12 and I still haven't gotten it completely i got a long way to go. Because plainness is hard for me. Plainness says, you get to see my flaws, and then you get to tell me that they're flaws, and I have to accept that they're flaws. Maturity is the opposite. Maturity is the ability to accept that what is on display is not finished. And that criticism for the believer is their clearest path to getting it right eventually. 
Criticism is our clearest path to sanctification, to being more like Jesus. When somebody points out that I don't have it right, that's a gift to me. And I've struggled with that. Kyle, you're not very good at this. You know what? You don't really lead very well in that area. And it's a gift. And if we don't accept it, shame on us. We have newness. We have plainness. And then he says the third thing is sameness. Sameness. Are your attitudes and behaviors consistent? Are you a moral person in private life but cutthroat in business? Are you innocent on Sunday morning but a vicious gossip on Friday night? Do you treat someone from who you can gain differently than you would treat someone who needs you? You can claim what you want on this one, but I am different with you than if Bill Gates walked in and asked for an hour of my time. I just am. Why? Because I could gain something from him. Because he's of this stature, because he's of this place. How refreshing is it? Ask somebody who has a, a place of power, a place of position. How refreshing is it to just be spoken to eye to eye? And the same is true if you've ever felt low before. And somebody doesn't treat you like a, a widget or a cog in a system to serve them, but as a human. How does that feel? Whoa. It's disarming. Previous life, I worked at Starbucks after I'd come home from being a missionary for a year, and I spent 18 months at Starbucks, and most people treated me as if I was the coffee machine. Right? I was like, no, I work the coffee machine, and they're like, no, no, just make my drink machine. And you deal with it, and you smile because you hope to get a tip out of it, but it, and then, then you're not a person. You're the reason the line's so long because you can't move any faster. And when someone would stop, we had this guy, he owned a, a yoga studio down the, the strip. He let Steph and I have free yoga passes, like 150 bucks a month, and we got to go anytime we wanted. He's a nice guy. He was a great dude. He became a friend. He'd come in, and he'd always ask for his coffee the same way. He'd get a, a, a venti 20-ounce coffee, and then he'd say, but I'm not going to fix it. You guys fix it. And we go, well, what do you want? And every single, uh, every day of the week, he'd say, make it Beyonce. We said, What? He said, yeah, just make it Beyonce. He goes, you know, she has that perfect skin. And he, he'd start going off on this tangent. We'd be like, okay, I think he means like add some cream, but kind of not like, and we'd hand it to him. And no matter what you did, it's good Beyonce. All right, thanks guys. And he'd be out. But while you're trying to fix Beyonce coffee, which no one ever quite figured out what that was, how sweet is she? I don't know her. He'd look you in the eye and he'd say, how's your day? It was great to see you in the studio yesterday working, you're getting a lot better. Are you still in school? Are you looking for another job? Do you need some help? I can be a reference. And everybody loved him. Steve was his name. I know his name a decade later. He practiced sameness. He didn't care that I didn't have any money in my pocket, that I was his coffee machine. He cared that I was a human. You know how I know this is universal struggle for us to be the same with everybody? Empty wedding reception tables. Empty wedding reception tables. You say, what does that mean, empty wedding reception tables? I will tell you. When you are a pastor, you sit at empty wedding reception tables. And you can ask my wife, we have way more pictures than we would like to have of the two of us at a table for 10. 
beautiful place settings. The silverware is out. That little, that little thing with the pads of butter is on it, untouched. Beautiful. The centerpiece. The, oh, it's just gorgeous. And her and me. And we are like, we have the plague. No one will sit there. There's like 14 people packed at another table. Adults are clamoring to get at that weird kids table where there's food everywhere. There's like, just don't make us sit with the pastor. Why? Because who wants to be with the pastor? Nobody wants the pastor to see him have a third glass of wine. Nobody wants to go get on the dance floor and come back to see the pastor looking at him. You know, he's going to talk about Jesus. Don't sit with him. They're terrified. And so we go to weddings and we know it. It's our joke going in. I said, which table do you want tonight? And we have a one-on-one date with hundreds of people in the room because no one ever wants to sit with us because people are one way, but they don't want to be that way with me. Pastor's the buzzkill. Are you the same no matter who is in your presence? I would challenge you to argue in front of your kids. That's great accountability. We do it. One of our first arguments was whether or not we're going to argue in front of our kids. (laughs) True. And we do. Not only do they need to learn what it looks like to fight fair and to be respectful and to love someone even in disagreement, but it holds me accountable, it holds her accountable. What would I say to you in the presence of them? And it's a check on my soul. Newness, plainness, and sameness. Integrity is the willingness to allow what is true of you in your deepest parts to be seen by all. The goodness instilled in you might be faithfully lived out. That's what we're aiming for. That the goodness instilled in you when the Holy Spirit comes upon your life and you have the fullness of the incarnate God living in you. Do you believe that? To allow that to live out faithfully is the heart of what we're after. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must walk as Jesus walks. Jesus lived goodness beyond what we can imagine. Jesus was faithful to the point of death on a cross. And so we claim to live in him, and so then together we have to walk with integrity, to walk as Jesus walked. And so our lives should look like the life of Christ. Let our lives be aiming for justice for all people, not just for advancement for us. Let our lives be marked by the fact that we give ourselves to serve others in the fullness of joy, whether they are the CEO or the checker at the Kroger. Doesn't matter who you are. What would it mean to walk as Jesus walked? It would mean we start our day by saying, Lord, let me be more like your son and show me the places, whether in booming God voice in my prayer or from my unsaved neighbor who just observed something in my life. Show me where I'm not yet who you want me to be. May we be merciful, slow to anger, quick to forgive. May we seek justice for the vulnerable. May we sacrifice our comfort for others. May we care enough about people to think first of them rather than being those people who first care what people think of us. May we be defenders of the weak. May we be people who speak truth to power. May we carry goodness and faithfulness all the days of our lives. May we seek God's best for others. 
keep our promises and live a life of true integrity. That we be transparent. Evidence not by our perfection, but by our newness, our plainness, and our sameness for all to see. May we walk in the light and be a light to all in darkness. May we who say we are Christians walk as Jesus walked. May our primary love be Jesus. Our priority, because you just get one, be him. And then our primary pursuit in this life be Christ-likeness in greater measure. That God, who saw fit to love us and save us when we were yet enemies, that God might use our lives as he uses us to make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am weary even thinking about the number of places that I still have to grow. The blind spots that I carry, the uh, sin that I try to overlook. Father, I would confess that the ideals that I hold are not always the actions that I live with. And yet in that, God, let me not be downcast, but let me be hopeful that you're not surprised that I'm imperfect. But in fact, you knew of my imperfection and you sent your son long before I knew I needed him. Father, as I run the race and stumble along the way, my prayer for me and for this community is that we would lose the shame of our imperfection and we would take on a transparency an integrity that shouts to the world around us we are not perfect and we know it yet we follow a perfect savior and in him we have hope and security and safety and joy